Today at Reader's Corner, Abdul Razak Gurna, author of the new novel, Afterlives, and the 2021 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, we talk to Abdul Razak Gurna, novelist and recipient of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature. We're talking with him today about his latest book, Afterlives. Spanning decades, the novel focuses on the lives of East African men, some of them kidnapped and forced to fight for the German colonizers. Returning home to Tanzania after years away, the men find their fates intertwined more tightly than ever, while the shadow of a new war on another continent threatens once again to carry them away. Abdul Razak Gurna is the author of 10 novels several of which have been shortlisted by the prestigious Booker Prize. Mr. Gurna lives in Canterbury, England, after retiring as a professor of English at the University of Kent. In 2021, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Abdul Razak Gurna, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, first of all, congratulations on your Nobel. We're honored to have you as a guest uh, once upon a time, a few years ago, we had Joseph Stiglitz, uh, the economist, on, and he had won the Nobel. But aside from that, this is just a distinct honor, and we can't uh, thank you enough for taking a few moments of your time. I'm so curious if you could uh, help us understand what what it's like. How did how did you learn you've just won the Nobel Prize? Uh, they pick up the phone and call you, or uh, something more or less personal? How does that happen? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the phone. Uh, uh-huh. And you know, these days, when the phone rings, you don't know who's calling. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got your contacts, so you know them. But then right. you get a call from somebody you don't know, you're suspicious. Because a lot right. of the time, there are people bothering you, wanting you to buy something. Right. So my first reaction from this call was to say, who are you? Sure. Uh, and the gentleman at the other end, very, very courteous gentleman, <laughs> that um, you have been awarded the Nobel Prize. And I thought, yeah, all right, fine. Now what do you want? <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. The first thing you do is wonder if it is some kind of a crank call, uh, one of your friends having fun with you. <laughs> well, or that, or indeed somebody more malicious than that, who says, you know, uh, you have just done this, now give me your account number or something like that. <laughs> right, yeah, get your credit card out. So yeah, is there any advance notice? I don't think there is, but do you have any way of knowing you've been nominated? No, you have no way. And I know that this is how they operate, because now that I've been down that road and I've spoken to the, the people who do it and say, how do you do it? I say, well, that's how they do it. You know, they, they keep the decision uh, secret, as you were, to themselves until the last minute. The uh, secretary of the committee picks up the phone and calls. And uh, not on every occasion do they find somebody at the other end. In fact, this year's uh, winner, Ani Anu, did not pick up the phone. Huh. She later said uh, that she heard the phone ringing, but she was busy. She was <laughs> writing. She didn't want to be disturbed. <laughs> well, that's very appropriate for, for a writer who, who's about to receive the Nobel. So you had to go to Oslo, Norway, uh, to pick up oh, the award, Stockholm. I guess. I mean, yeah, Stockholm, Stockholm. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you, was it? Is there a torchlight procession of some kind that that? Well, uh, you remember, I I was awarded the prize in November 2021. Uh-huh. We were still in the grip of COVID. Nobody was traveling anywhere. 
So actually they cancelled the ceremony and instead uh, they gave the awards to the various laureates in their country of residence. So my award was actually, I received mine in the Swedish embassy in London, which was very nice because Mm -hmm. uh, they organized a lunch and I could invite my family and friends. And it was a small scale thing. But this just this couple of weeks ago, uh, which is when they hold what they call Nobel Week, which is when they do all of that pageantry and palava and you know banquets and ceremonies, they actually invited those of us who missed out because of COVID as guests. So we were there to see uh, the ceremony for this year's laureates and mm-hmm. participate in some respects for it. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible event. The whole country is kind of like watching on TV from 8 a.m. in the morning till 2 a.m. at night or in the next morning. That's the World Cup of Literature. Absolutely. It's amazing. <laughs> and not just literature, of course. Yeah, of course, the others as well. In yeah, your case, there, literature, yeah. There's six, 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 I think, categories, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And many of them have, like the science categories, always have more than one recipient. Right. So, you know, you've got a whole group of people that have all of them with gray hair. <laughs> So the Nobel Committee called your body of work an uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents. Could you uh, give us just a brief uh, description of, of Afterlives, your latest novel? And and that certainly lives up to that Nobel description for sure. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, uh, it's right next door to where I grew up in Zanzibar, uh, where the uh, the conflict is taking place. And in many accounts of um, that conflict, 1914-1918, the First World War, as it's otherwise called, there's very little mention, really, of how this conflict was a world conflict. What is talked about is largely the... um, I suppose the the episode, the historical conflict in in Europe itself, and anyway, in particular, the the war as it affected uh, African nations was always a minor thing, some marginal thing, you know, it's not, but it wasn't because hundreds of thousands of casualties, not all of them through the military activities, but many through the the result of those activities, uh, disease, starvation, destruction of livelihoods, and so on. So it was always, I always wanted to write about this because I grew up with stories about this where I lived. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the people who were close to me who had been in part of it in some way or another. Yeah, so it's something I always wanted to write about, but didn't really know enough until time passed and you gather information and knowledge and understanding. And this was the right time to do it. And and you gave remarks at the Swedish embassy, I believe, or somewhere along the line, there were your remarks in in thanking or uh, in accepting the award. Is that correct? I've made remarks all over the place. That's yeah. what you do. <laughs> yeah, right. When you get into this situation, people ask you to say things all the time. Yeah. So you have to be you have to be a little bit more specific about what remarks you're yeah. talking. About. Well, I've taken down some remarks that that I found online that uh, were characterized as the remarks that you gave in response to receiving the award. It tries to sum up the body of your work as you see it. And what I'd like to do is just read a few of those and have you comment. Uh, They're clearly about your novel. And of course, here at Reader's Corner, we never give away how novels turn out. 
we want our readers to figure that out. We want our readers to buy this book. And so um, I'm going to run through these these uh, brief uh, quotes of yours and then perhaps have you comment. Okay. Sure. Our, here's the first one. Our histories were partial, silent about many cruelties. Our politics was racialized and led directly to the persecutions that followed the revolution when fathers were slaughtered in front of their children and daughters were assaulted in front of their mothers. Share with us, how does that capture the racialization of the day? I was talking there about, I guess I was talking there about why it was that I decided that I would need to leave where I was born, where I grew up, to go elsewhere. Um, And then after leaving, trying to understand what it was that I'd left behind. And that description there of is not something I would have come to when I was 18 years old, which is when I left, but something that I came to on reflection of uh, what we know of ourselves or what we had done to ourselves. And so speaking about racialization of politics, it's not something peculiar to uh, one place. It's something that often happens as a result of colonialism, because the uh, colonial administration would use these divisions within societies in order to to be able to control, to be able to to put one against the other, and so on. In this way, you keep things working. But we we I suppose did not quite get over that ourselves. So we we embraced that in a way and continued that uh, racialized politics. Which I think happened in, as a result in many of uh, many decolonizing nations that the, the, uh, antagonisms that had been, um, partly used, but in any case, empires do this. Empires can suppress and, uh, you know, divisions within societies by placing an authoritarian power over it all. But when you remove that, you see what happened to the Soviet Union. You see what happened to so many, uh, colonized territories. You remove that authoritarian administration, and then those differences that have been suppressed have to come out. People have to sort these differences out. And if race is an issue, then that too becomes part of uh, of what has to happen. If your readers, if your readers know anything about the Indian Ocean, which is where Zanzibar is, there is a kind of uh, Indian Ocean culture, if you like, of travel between different parts of those of Africa and Arabia and India and elsewhere. So the littorals, the coastlines of all of those places are full of people with mixed origins because of all the centuries of exchange. If you racialize that, you create turmoil and conflict when people had learned to live, you know, with these differences. Mm-hmm. That's really what I was referring to. Mm-hmm. You said you've you've learned so much that you had left behind. What what exactly, uh, let's say politically or governmentally, did you leave behind? What was going on in Zanzibar and Tanzania at the time you left to uh, go to school in London? Well, there was a revolution in 1964. Uh, but to call it a revolution is also to some extent misleading because um, it was... Sometimes it's represented as a revolution against the Arab sultan or something of this kind. But actually, the this sultan, had his power had been taken away in the 19th century by the British. The, the sultan was just a guy with a robes and whatever. But the election just before independence was won. There was an election, they won. And the revolution was against 
a democratically elected government. And I think this is important to keep in mind. It wasn't, it wasn't a revolution against an oligarchy. Um, in any case, whatever, it's 50 years ago and you've got to move on. Mm-hmm. But it was a very difficult time. And when you're 18 and you want something a little bit more fulfilling for your life, you think, well, maybe it's time to go and find it, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. Another quote from uh, your remarks, a new simpler history was being constructed, transforming and even obliterating what had happened, restructuring it to suit the verities of the moment. Was there any of that in your what you call your colonized schooling in, in Zanzibar? This would have been people uh, writing about uh, these events later. And sometimes people, I mean, here I'm talking about people who may be well-meaning, who are studying other places, and who prefer one version of history, which is a simplified version of history, which says, here was an oppressive group of people, here was a progressive group of people, and they brought a new order. So I was referring to that, that sort of the seduction, if you like, of seeing um, the way societies are changed by force as somehow a progress, when in fact, we don't always appreciate the full complexity of the situation. I mean, as historians or as scholars or as students of other places. You also said uh, a new and simpler history that not only suited the victors, but also commentators and scholars who had no real interest in those whose lives they captured. Uh, Help us understand how the commentators and the scholars got this wrong. I I think that was what you were referring to when you said people who had good intentions or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's a kind of a (laughs) paradigm as where you think, you know, this is Decolonization means this. It means those oppressive people have been removed and new people are brought in and now we're moving forward. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a, a seductive idea that we, the world has changed. We're moving on. Colonialism is over, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, maybe sometimes specific places or specific histories become, um, sort of pressed into this format, into this paradigm when they don't quite fit in, you know, so, so that you want to say everything is progress, when in fact, in, in many situations, what you have is the very opposite. I'm Bob Kustra, host of Reader's Corner. Today, I'm speaking with Abdul Razak Gurna, Nobel Prize winner and author of the novel Afterlives. The book is a multi-generational saga of displacement, love, and loss set against the brutal colonization of East Africa. One more uh, remark from, from yours. Uh, we grew up and were educated in that period of high imperial confidence, at least in our parts of the world, when domination disguised its real self in euphemisms, and we agreed to the subterfuge. I refer to the period before colonization campaigns across the region hit their stride and drew our attention to the depredations of colonial rule. How does that manifest itself in, in your life as a youngster in Zanzibar, or did it? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, everything you were quoting there is from the Nobel lecture that I gave. Oh, right. There you go. Yeah, rather than remarks. Okay, this is how how I... I think I explained it there a little bit, to say that, say, people of my father's generation, who would have been already children, at least, as the Europeans arrived to, to, at least to colonize. My father was born in 1901, uh, we were colonized in 1896. So I guess he would have been like 10, 11 years old as, as the colonial administration takes control. 
So there's that generation. Now, what were they doing before these guys arrived? They, most of them would have gone to Quran school. My father was literate, in the, but in the Arabic script, because that's what you get taught in the Quran school. And they had a profound belief in their world, regardless of the presence of uh, you know, colonial administrators. They, they had a profound understanding of their world. Our generation grew up with a, a colonial education, and our world was already disrupted by this new knowledge. Not all of it bad, not all of it unwelcome, but nonetheless, there wasn't that same kind of uh, solidity of knowing your stories in your life. We had to now take in other people's stories and understand them and see how, they, how we were described in this world and how we had to compare that description with what we already knew and all of this kind of thing. So I think what the colonial education did to us, people of our generation, is to introduce quite, it's not a bad thing, but to introduce some doubt about, you know, the world we lived in. The post-colonial generation grow up with none of this worry, but completely different worries, which are to do with the malfunctioning of the world they live in, which is now their world. But they have to understand, they have to understand that the difficulties and the problems of their world are actually a legacy of what had already happened. Uh, a legacy what, of what you know, colonialism has done, as well as, to some extent, our own failure to undo what colonialism has done. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'm talking about, this way right. in which colonial education actually prepares you very little but to serve. But because we all have a little bit of spark of understanding, we say, no, no, it's not right, it's not true. And mm-hmm. that's what you write books about. Deepo Faloyan, uh, who is a Nigerian writer living in London now, joined us at Reader's Corner a few weeks ago to talk about his book, Africa is Not a Country. And it was a very great uh, lesson, uh, helping us understand how Europeans divvied up the continent by drawing random straight lines without regard to local, regional, or tribal affiliations, which would later then turn internal friction into wars. And I wonder... Uh, on the east side of Africa, anyway, uh, how how Floyan's analysis applies? Yeah, it applies everywhere, really, not just in yeah. Africa. It applies in all sorts of places where yeah. where these um, maps were drawn for the convenience of the the powers, as they like to call themselves. Of course, it's still being done. It's just the maps are not being redrawn, but it's still being done. This degree of uh, interfering in other people's lives and other people's cultures usually violently, and then when things get a bit difficult, just clearing out um, and leaving them to their mess and then blaming them for it. What mm-hmm. they did uh, in many parts of Africa, for sure, is to simply draw the map, 1884, 85. They drew the map, uh, the maps, rather, um, and they put together, in many cases, people who did not have anything. They did not want to be put together. <laughs> right. They did not want to be one territory or, or one nation. So much of the conflicts in Africa are a result of these these um, this shambolic, you know, dumping people together who then have somehow or the other have to work out how they get on with each other when perhaps they don't want to. So let's talk about Hamza in your novel. At All one right. point, at one point, he's he's told by a German officer that quote We have come to civilize you, and in another point. Only I don't think you will ever learn mathematics. It requires mental discipline you people are not capable of. And I have to tell you, as I read that, 
I thought of uh, the American experience as uh, European settlers moved across our land uh, as uh, pioneers and attempted to, quote, civilize, unquote, uh, Native Americans. Uh, but getting back to Hamza, maybe you could tell us a little bit about his experience, especially with the German army. And that in itself uh, seems to be a, a very troubling aspect of your book. I'll get into that later, but I just uh, was so amazed at the way things turn out for Hamza. We don't have to tell the whole story here, but I'll let you. Uh... Well, I mean, I think there is uh, just a hint of irony in the way that the officer, because the officer is a little bit himself, a little bit uncertain about this job that he's doing but of course that was the the narrative of of colonization was we're bringing civilization to these people Mm -hmm. not only germans everybody else was using this but it was an untrue uh narrative it was a duplicitous narrative it was it was a cover-up for for the real purpose of colonization it wasn't to bring civilization it was to to get whatever could be got out of those places um but for the folks at home, it was to say, this is what we're there for. We're taking civilization. The nature of colonialism was violent and coercive and continues to be. All these powerful uh, interventions in other people's cultures to dictate to them. But, but at that time, we hadn't yet, uh, we, we didn't know enough. You know, now we have information about everywhere. So, you know, they would say, we're coming here. You're all sick. You don't know about diseases, which is true. Uh, Europe and the West was making enormous advances in medical knowledge. And in many places of the world, they didn't know about this. So we see you all guys, you got plague, you got this, you got that. We have the medicines for that. So that's one of the advantages unlooked for. One of the benefits uh, of uh, that intervention is that we got to share some of those uh, advances that uh, Europe and the West have made. Mm. But there was a price, and the price was um, in many places there were extrapolations, land taken away, uh, people to do forced work, uh, you lose control over your life, um, etc. All the usual um, consequences of such interventions. So when the German officer says, you don't know anything, it's just a reflection of the ideological position of the colonizer. We know very well that as soon as people got to the chance to learn to do these things, they became masters at it. Maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you think of the way in which now scientific, literary, cultural, musical knowledge is shared by all cultures, you know, it's not only, say, Northern European people who can do these things. Everybody can do these things because, you know, when their minds are opened, when they have the opportunity to learn, they show their excellence. This business of learning so much from those who colonize you has another aspect to it, I suppose. Uh, Falloyan, in his book, Africa is Not a Continent, uh, claims that uh, as Western powers move in, I think he's talking more about today than the colonial period, when Western powers move into countries in Africa with uh, nonprofits and various solutions to African problems, it, mm-hmm. it it sometimes looks to Africans like uh, they can't do it themselves, that sure. uh, they have to depend on somebody else to do what they can, in fact, do themselves. Sure, sure. I mean, one, of, one of these things, of course, is to, su- to suppress whatever it is that, is that works. 
as a way of saying it doesn't work anymore. Now, from now on, you do it this way. You do it our yeah. way. Partly this is because of the ignorance of those who are who are performing this. You know, the administrators, they don't want to know about or whatever it is. Um, but in any case, it's also worth controlling. We don't want you to do it your way. We want you to do it our way because then we're in charge. Mm-hmm. So the suppression of local knowledge, the suppression of uh, local understanding and putting in its place another way of looking at the world is not only self-serving, it's actually essential from a power point of view to say that only our way works. And so you only all you have to do is obey from now on. You don't have to think. You do what we tell you. So there's a war in your novel that uh, actually existed uh, between the Germans and the British for control of East Africa. And at one point, several battalions of British troops, mostly Indians, disembarked. Uh, could you comment on on how bizarre it is that um, one country on one continent is being uh, invaded, if you will, uh, by colonizers who are using those who they colonized across the Indian Ocean? Well, it's actually worse than that. Because if you think of that conflict that we're referring to, the, the episode, the historical episode in 1914-18 in what was then called Deutsche Ostafrika. The armies involved were uh, the KAR, the King's African Rifles, that's the British army, the Schutztruppe, which is the German army, the uh, Force Publique, which is the Belgian army from across to, from the west, from what is now DRC, Rwanda and Burundi, uh, and also the Portuguese. All of these people, all of these armies were made up of African people. So what you had, apart from a small number of European officers, is Africans fighting each other. And what what is it that they're fighting about or for? They don't know. They don't know what they're fighting for. In fact, of course, what they're fighting for is to see who would be their colonizer. Because whoever wins the war is going to be the colonial master of these areas. There's deep irony in that. And you might wonder, and I wondered as I, as I was starting to write this book, why would people do that? Why would people become colonial mercenaries to fight against other Africans? And I guess the answer must be that there wasn't that kind of idea of African, that they were recruited from another place, brought to this place to fight people they didn't know. And the notion or the idea of there being a kind of solidarity, us, we are all being colonized by these people, hadn't right. yet quite clicked. Exactly. And people had not understood that what we're doing is we're actually fighting to be colonized by the Germans or the British rather than by the British or the Germans or something like that. And the Indians are in the same way. You know, uh, the Indians had, had fought the wars in India in the 17th and 18th century for the East India Company, for the British and they fought for the British in the First World War in Europe. It's one of the things, one of the deep ironies, I think, of the uh, result of uh, the consequences of colonialism is that colonized people then become mercenaries for the people who are oppressing them. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Abdul Razak Gurna, the 2021 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature and author of the celebrated novel Afterlives. And you had an uncle who served in the King's African Rifles, and I think you... Also allude to another relative who was conscripted, conscripted by the Germans to fight their uh, colonizing war. Did you learn anything from them? Well, the first time I heard the story of the war was from that 
uh, other relative, as we call him. Uh, uh-huh. We we would have called him our grandfather, although because we're kind of generous with how we name <laughs> our relatives. He was really my my mother's uncle, uh, but we don't have a word for my mother's uncle, so uh, so it's easier to say grandfather. Anyway, he he was the one who was conscripted, but he was a very uh, smart character. He was. Um, I, I'm absolutely certain he would have deserted as quickly as he could. But my uncle, my mother's brother now, he actually joined up as an 18-year-old. He joined the KR uh, and went to fight in um, against the Italians in Abyssinia in that Second World War, um, or Ethiopia, rather. And why did he do it? Well, you could never get people, I don't know, I'm sure you've met this before. You could never get, I could never get him to talk about it. And I think this often happens with people who've been involved in these uh, sorts of events, wars, and so on. It's very difficult. I've heard this from many people. It's very difficult to get a, a parent or a relative to to speak. And I don't actually know why. I don't know if it's shame or if it's just I don't want to be reminded of uh, uglinesses like that. I really don't know. But my uncle would just laugh. He was that kind of man. If you ask him questions like that, he would laugh and he would say, oh, he was all right. He was all right. He was all right. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I had an uncle just like that who uh, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, yeah. uh, one, one of the most significant uh, war- battles. And uh, and he he lived to be 94 and we could never get a word out of him. Not a exactly. word. Well, yeah, that's yeah. it. You know, yeah. I don't know. Do you figure out, can you figure out why he wouldn't? Did he have, I, did he have any clues? I think you, you may be onto something when you say they just didn't want to be reminded of it. They, yeah. they wanted to move on and not think about, uh, their experience is the only thing I can, can assume. Uh, I have time for one other question and I, I want to hit upon a, a question that, uh, comes up in your book, uh, regarding two survivors of German colonization, uh, Khalifa and Asha. They were married in 1907 and, and you refer to that period as the final throes of the Maji Maji uprising. I read up a little bit on that, but I'd like your thoughts on, on just what that was and how that fits into this tale of colonization. Sure. Okay. We're not giving anything away. Right. Without giving anything away. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the, the, after the, uh, the map drawing we discussed earlier, uh, then they had to go, like the Germans were new to this thing still, or relatively new to the whole business of colonizing in Africa. They were not new to colonizing because they've been colonizing Europe for centuries, but they were new to this thing. So when they arrived in our part of the world in 1888, they brought with them a mercenary force. These were Sudanese mercenaries who had fought for the British against the Mahdi in Sudan but were now no longer required. So the German commander just recruited them, brought them with him. From that moment in 1888 until 1918, when they lost that as a result of the Versailles Amstis, the Germans fought one war after another. Small conflicts, but they just fought all the time because they had to, because nobody wanted to be colonized. But because we didn't have this idea of nation, they were able to do it because they were fighting one group at a time and they suppressed this one, and then they moved to another one, they suppressed that one. So all along, until about 1907, when we had what you call the Maji Rebellion, which became widespread. But it was nothing new so far as the German experience of colonizing Dojos Africa was. They just had been fighting all the time. But this time, it was a more widespread thing. And the cruelties against all of these wars 
uh, really quite astonishing. This is such a universal theme because I think I also read that uh, the Germans wanted these locals to grow cotton. And I thought of all the crops that uh, that I can think of, I mean, on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, in a very different setting, Africans were coming in as slaves doing the very same thing. Yeah, they didn't do slavery in quite the same way as you guys did. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't quite like that. Well, right. they didn't have the time. They didn't have the, you know, the atmosphere, as it were, the sense of the difference between themselves and the people that they were colonizing. But it wasn't just cotton. It was cotton, coffee, various things. The whole point, of course, mm-hmm. of colonization was how to exploit the land. But there weren't very many of them, the Germans. I mean, the numbers of German settlers was very small, and it was a struggle. They struggled in that place because there weren't enough of them. They couldn't, however much force they applied, they couldn't quite subdue everybody and they couldn't make it work. And then the war came. Remember, it's only 30 years. They only had 1888 till 1918. Maybe if they had been given another 180 years, like the British had in India or in North America or whatever, they might have got this thing worked out. Mm-hmm. But they only had 30 years. And because they were coming with such a military mentality, Remember, this is Germany, just united now, Bismarck in charge, almost a military state. The only way they could think about bringing order to this place was through violence. Let me close on a a question about those who moved from the south to the north, yourself included. Um, And obviously, as your book points out, uh, that's for reasons that have much to do with colonization, Again, on Reader's Corner a few weeks ago, we talked to an author, Guy Events, again from London, who wrote her book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. And it, it raises the question of, as as increasing numbers of people move from the south to the north uh, to avoid the climate disaster in their own countries, I might add sometimes caused by the developed nations, uh, there's an acceptance issue. There's a, how easily are, are they, are they acclimated? How easy are they, easily are they accepted into the community? You had to live through that, uh, moving from the south to the north. Uh, are there any lessons that might help us deal more objectively and compassionately with this than what we see going on on our Mexican border in America and, and what we see in, in other countries where there's just this hostility that has grown up that's a bit scary when you look at the fact that there really aren't a lot of options for these people. Well, it's inhumane. We have an obligation as human societies. It doesn't matter where you come from or whatever. As a human societies, um, when people are escaping or trying to get away from conditions that are threatening their lives, in some cases, very, very, very exactly threatening their lives. As cities are being destroyed, their lives are at risk. There is an obligation to be hospitable. Never mind anything else. You can't turn people whose lives are at risk away. You have to help. There is that. There is also a question of responsibility, taking responsibility for things that have been done in order to become prosperous. And the result of those who have paid the price for this and have no, have no recourse, have no option now, but to say, you are prosperous. We are in need. We're coming to you because there will improve our lives. I think these are things that have gone on in human history. It's not just north-south, really. That these movements 
have not always been in one direction. Movements have also been in the other direction, from Europe to the rest of the world, where people have gone for the same kind of reasons, but driven by uh, the kind of ideological understanding of themselves and the world they were going into. So there was no question of, but we have a right to, to, to take, to do this and to do whatever. Well, the world has changed and no longer is it possible now for people from Mali to come to Carolina and say, I want this piece of land. Mm -hmm. They have to come more humbly, more modestly to say, I will work. I'm not coming empty handed. I will work. Give me work. But in addition to that, I think there is this other obligation I'm speaking about. That mm -hmm. When people are in need, we have to be hospitable. Those thoughts are a fitting conclusion to our conversation with Abdul Razak Gurna, the author of Afterlives, the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2021. Abdul Razak, thanks for this conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for your body of work that helps us better understand the world in which we live. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.